Hi, my name is Harry Shannon. I'm president of the Alumni Council, and, and in that uh, function, I have the privilege uh, to be able to introduce our speaker today, Professor Barbara Imakos is a been a professor at the law school since 1992. She's originally from Baltimore. We've been having an interesting conversation over lunch. Uh, one of the things that I like about the law school and about everyone here are the people in this room and the kids that, and I've used that and because of my advanced age, I would talk about the uh, kids. That some of those are, are, are also older. Uh, it's the people in this room, it's the people are, that you get to deal with on a day in and day out basis at the, at the law school and the faculty at the foundation on the Alumni Council, really a sense of community, a sense of, of, of friendship that, uh, that I really value. And it's, and it's not uh, unusual, I think, to go around the room and do introductions of a lot of people here that have impressive backgrounds, but uh, Barb has uh, a, 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 a unique uh, UVA background. She's really a triple who. Uh, she was born in Baltimore, went to undergraduate school at the University of Virginia, studied nursing, became the head nurse or assistant head nurse in the cardiovascular unit at UVA for about four or five years, then left that profession and went to get her master's degree in theological studies from Regent College in British Columbia, and then left that degree to start in the law school at UVA where she uh, graduated in 1986. Thereafter, she clerked for Harvey Wilkinson, Judge Wilkinson, and uh, worked for the Justice Department. And in 1992, returned to the law school for now the third time and makes her, making her a triple who um, as a professor here. And she's going to talk to us today about the uh, about white supremacy, protests, and policing, and the events of August 11 and 12 this year in Charlottesville, which sadden all of us. And um, we're looking forward to hearing to hearing what Barb has to say. Barb. Thank you so much. It's a real privilege to um, address this group today. I know I speak for all of us at the law school when I say thank you to the members of the foundation board and the alumni council for all the things that you do to support us and to support this law school. So we're very grateful for all of you. I've been asked to talk to you today about the events that occurred in Charlottesville on the weekend of August 11th and 12th. I want to give you a bit of an inside view of what I saw as a lawyer, as a po police scholar, and as a human being. On Friday, August 11th, I was attending an interfaith service at St. Paul's Episcopal Church on the university corner. Many in that racially diverse group were preparing to be at Emancipation Park the next day in nonviolent protest of the Unite the Right rally. I left the church around 9 o'clock to walk home, taking a route across the grounds. On the way, I came across a rapidly growing group of men gathering in nameless fields. As I stopped to watch, I was horrified to see hundreds of them light torches and begin to march toward the lawn. They were yelling, 
you will not replace us. Jews will not replace us. I wondered what it would felt like to be standing there if I, had, if I were black or Jewish. I learned later that a few brave students stood in silent protest around the Jefferson statue in front of the rotunda. The mob surrounded them and beat them with torches and fists. On the morning of August 12th, I joined about 30 legal observers who were stationed around Emancipation Park. Many, like me, were lawyers and some were law students. My role as a legal observer gave me a front row seat at the events unfolding in Emancipation Park. On that Saturday, hundreds of white supremacists showed up in the park in downtown Charlottesville, ostensibly to protest the removal of the Confederate statue. I saw crowds of men and women fill the streets, waving Nazi and Confederate flags and shouting hateful slogans. Many wore helmets and carried shields, clubs, and other kinds of weapons. I also observed hundreds of counter-protesters who showed up to say no to white supremacy. Among them, an interfaith group of clergy members knelt in prayer along one side of the park. They were taunted and spit on by the protesters as they knelt. Violence raged in the streets for nearly two hours before police shut down the rally. Later that afternoon, white supremacist a white supremacist drove his car into the crowd of counter-protesters, killing 32-year-old Heather Heyer and injuring many others. It was a very long and tragic day. The role of legal observer was new to me, but it was a perfect vantage point for a police scholar. The job of legal observer is to be the eyes and ears for the rule of law. We, were ident we wore identifying clothing, in this case green hats, and took positions in pairs around the rally site. Our job was to observe and record in written form all interactions between police and counter-protesters as they unfolded. Our notes were designed to be a moment-by-moment -moment record of these interactions. They have since been collected and stored as eyewitness testimony. Many people made a point to tell us how reassuring it was to see those green hats. They knew we were committed to keeping their government accountable under the law. I like to think our presence facilitated some extra measure of, of lawfulness that day. As a police scholar, the first thing I want to talk to you about this afternoon is the challenges that police officers faced on that day. I will mention three. The first challenge was the scheduled location of the rally. Unite the Right organizers sought a permit for 500 to 800 protesters in Emancipation Park, which you can see on the slide above. Over a thousand counter-protesters were expected to show up, and this was all in a block square park bounded by narrow city streets. On August 7th, the city tried to move the rally to McIntyre Park, which would have been a larger venue. The Unite the Right organizers sued, and the federal court enjoined the city for moving the protest on First Amendment grounds. The court reasoned that the city had moved the rally because it didn't like the message being conveyed by the white supremacists. Content-based restrictions, as we know, are not okay under the First Amendment. In addition, the First Amendment forbids restrictions premised on crowd responses to speech. So, whether right or wrong, at the end of the day, the rally remained in Emancipation Park, and police were stuck with protecting two opposing groups of protesting, protesters 
in a very small venue surrounded by narrow city streets. The second challenge was that the Unite the Right protesters said they were coming armed. Given Virginia's open carry laws, Charlottesville city officials believed they didn't have the power to limit guns and other weapons at the rally. So now you have over a thousand people crammed into a small amount of physical space and hundreds of them are carrying weapons. The armed group also included 30 members of a private militia who showed up with semi-automatic weapons. Looking back now, I realized I should have been terrified. I'm astonished no one got shot. It would have only taken one shot to get it all started. The third challenge was that police had recently been criticized for their aggressive behavior after a July KKK rally in Charlottesville. At that rally, which I also attended, around 40 members of the North Carolina branch of the Klan showed up in Justice Park. During the rally, police ringed the park to keep the two groups apart. Afterward, riot police surrounded the Klan protesters and walked them down the street to their waiting vehicles. Police then returned to the park where counter-protesters were milling around in largely peaceful protests. What happened next is disputed. Police say they declared an unlawful assembly, ordered the counter-protesters to disperse, and only tear-gassed them when they disobeyed that order. Counter-protesters say they never heard an order to disperse. It was very noisy, the crowds were noisy, and there were helicopters overhead. In any event, the optics of this police action were awful. It looked like the police protected the Klan, but tear-gassed the people who came to protest their hate. It felt to city residents like police had protected the invading outsiders, but tear-gassed their own citizens. The state and local police got terrible publicity for these actions. I think this history may have had something to do with how, how police behaved on August 12th. The second big topic I want to address this afternoon is what I actually observed that day. My location as a legal observer was the block of Market Street directly in front of Emancipation Park. I served with three outstanding students from the law school. I was paired with one of them. She was brave and wise and thoughtful. I was really proud of those students. On that day, by about 9.30 a.m., the park was already beginning to fill up with members of the various Unite the Right groups. I saw protesters wearing gas masks, holding shields, and carrying various kind of weapons. Many were waving Confederate and Nazi flags. The streets were also filling up, both with white supremacist protesters and with counter-protesters of various stripes. There was a lot of marching and shouting and holding up signs. Meanwhile, police had taken up stationary positions around the park, and as you can see, the park is a square it's bounded by two main streets, Jefferson Street and Market Street, and then there's two side streets. So police in shields and riot gear were lined up inside the park on three sides, including the Jefferson side and the Market Street side. There were also police lined up along the park on Market Street on the mall side, and there was another line of police blocking access to First Street between Market and Jefferson. By 1 o'clock, by 10 o'clock a.m., Market Street alongside the park and stretching in both direction was absolutely packed 
with white supremacists and counter-protesters. I just want to give you an idea of how crowded it was down there. Taunting turned into fistfights and street brawling between members of the two groups. I could see people getting knocked down and then dragged out of the street by their friends. I kept asking myself why police officers were standing by and not doing anything to intervene. There was incident after incident and the police remained stationary, not breaking their lines. They literally watched multiple assaults occurring and took no action. It was very puzzling and very distressing. This went on for well over two hours. Meanwhile, the unguarded fourth side of the park near the library was becoming a tinderbox. The white supremacists and the counter-protesters were shouting at each other and shoving at the metal barriers. It was clear that one of the groups was gonna breach that unguarded section. This was also where the clergy were kneeling, which placed them in danger. It was at this point that police declared an unlawful assembly. Police in riot gear cleared the white supremacists out of the park and onto the streets. For a brief, shining moment, the counter-protesters surged into the park, and there was a kind of surprise joy on people's faces. They were looking at each other as if to say, we just drove the white supremacists out of the park. But of course, that was short-lived, as the police cleared them out too. Shortly after, police and riot gear began to walk in a line down Market Street, forcing the counter-protesters away from the park. And I worried that the police were going to forcefully disperse the counter-protest crowd as they had done at the Klan rally. But they didn't. A block down Market Street, the riot police stopped. Police in ordinary uniforms took their place, and those officers just stood there, blocking people from moving back to the park but not forcing them to disperse. At one point, I, I walked up to a police officer who appeared to be in charge. I wanted to affirm the decision not to disperse the counter-protesters this time. The officer in charge said to me, why are they still here? I said, because white supremacists just came to our town and took over our park, shouting hateful things. People are upset and they need time. I was grateful that police did not repeat the mistakes from the KKK rally, but I was discouraged that they stood down when we needed them. And I was discouraged that they didn't seem to understand the trauma that our community had just experienced from hundreds of white supremacists spewing hate. I should not have had to explain that to the police. The third and final topic I want to talk to you about today is what went wrong. I experienced these things as a human being, but I also experienced them as a lawyer and a police scholar. So let me make two comments as we look to the future. One is about policing and one is about guns. My comment about policing is that police made a crucial mistake by failing to create a buffer zone between the two opposing groups at the rally. One of the circumstances that made the Klan rally much easier for police to control is that Klan members all arrived together. This allowed police to usher them in and out of the park with a strong show of force. But when 500 to 800 protesters from many different unaffiliated groups arrive at a rally site at different times in multiple vehicles, you can't control them the same way. Police needed a plan for handling this, and they didn't seem to have one. I'm, I'm no expert on police logistics, 
But after the rally, I had a long conversation with a former police chief who has many years of policing experience in a number of different police departments. In his view, the only way to have kept order on August 12th was to use physical barriers, vehicles, and police personnel to keep the two groups on opposite sides of the park. Once the groups were mixing it up on the street, the battle was essentially lost. The police did set up stationary lines around the inside perimeter of the park to create a safe zone in the park for the scheduled rally, but they did not create safe zones in the streets. Unite the Right protesters arrived from all directions. They used the same entry points as the counter protesters, and eventually the streets filled up with a jostling and restless crowd drawn from both groups. Clashes between the two groups were inevitable in such close quarters. Police also left one whole side of the park unguarded, which is where much of the violence erupted. In addition, when police cleared the park, they drove the protesters onto the already crowded streets, which guaranteed more violence. The violence included the brutal beating of an African-American man in a nearby parking garage. Tragically, once police lost control of the crowds, they seemed to have no contingency plan for controlling the violence. They remained in their police lines until an unlawful assembly was declared. From the perspective of those of us who were there, the failure to intervene felt like a betrayal. There was a safe zone in the park where the white supremacists were, but not in the streets where the counter-protesters gathered. As an aside, one theory that has been circulating is that police intentionally stood down in order to allow violence to escalate. According to this theory, their goal was to allow just enough disorder to justify declaring an unlawful assembly. I hope that's not true. As my police chief friend said of that possibility, it would be criminal for police to intentionally stand by and let people assault each other. Another theory is that police were worried that if they intervened in the street fighting, their actions would actually escalate the violence. Under this theory, police were worried that if they tried to separate people or arrest people, it would turn into a gunfight. I think there's actually some truth to that theory, and this leads me to my second reflection as a lawyer. It can't be that government officials have no power to limit weapons during First Amendment events. The court's opinion refusing to permit the rally to be moved was based on textbook First Amendment law. But as Dahlia Lithwick pointed out in a recent article in Slate magazine, the decision seems to have been issued in a vacuum, one in which Second Amendment open carry rights swallowed up the First Amendment altogether. The neo-Nazis who won the right to march through a Jewish neighborhood in Skokie, Illinois in 1977 did not come to town armed with semi-automatic weapons while they chanted, Jews will not replace us. In Lithwick's words, the threat the Skokie marchers posed, while symbolic and terrifying, was not the threat. We are coming to town armed with the power to kill you. In short, any discussion of time, place, and manner restrictions on armed protesters has to take their weapons into account. The question the court failed to answer is this. When demonstrators, kept, when te demonstrators carry guns and threaten to provoke violence, does the government have a compelling interest in regulating their expressive conduct more carefully than it would, able, would otherwise able to have done? Ironically, 
the result of failing to reckon with the risks posed by armed protesters was actually less speech rather than more. Police were faced with so many people walking around with guns that they were understandably reluctant to step in too quickly. When they finally did step in, it was to halt the rally entirely and clear the park. This meant that nonviolent protesters lost their right to assemble and express their ideas. In a very real sense, the right to bear arms overrode the freedom of speech. The time is right for courts to take a new look at the intersection of rights of speech and rights to bear arms. Rallies with guns cannot be treated for First Amendment purposes like rallies without guns. I'm not an expert in this area, but as I read the Supreme Court's Second Amendment precedents, there is room for gun regulation at First Amendment events in public places. Let me end by saying, being at that, this rally on August 12th was a life-changing experience for me. I will never be the same. I experienced with my body, my ears, and my eyes the kind of violence and hate that some of my African-American, Jewish, and LGBT friends have experienced. As a white woman, I did not feel like I was in any particular danger, but I felt the danger that would have been directed at my friends. I'm grateful for that privilege. If there's another rally, I will tell my African-American and Jew Jewish and gay friends to stay away, but some of us need to be there. I saw firsthand why so-called violence on the other side is not morally equivalent to the violence the white supremacists were dishing out. When you carry KKK-style torches and chant, Jews will not replace us. When you are quoted as saying that America should be 80% white and that you are in favor of gentle ethnic cleansing, when you rejoice that a counter-protester was killed by a car driven into the crowd, then the protest to resist these things, even if it turns aggressive, is not morally equivalent to the hate and aggression the white supremacists were acting out. When oppressed people are confronted with violence, they sometimes re respond aggressively with defensive violence. I don't condone this violence, but I understand it much better now. I was moved to learn that it was the Antifa, a leftist organization sometimes known for violence, but not in Charlottesville. They were the ones who stood behind the kneeling clergy protected them from harm. If I had any doubt about whether the Confederate statues need to come down, I no longer have any doubt. If those statues stand for what I heard at the park, there's no question they need to come down. On August 12th, I saw in three dimensions the truth of Edmund Burke's famous line, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. We don't all need to be counter-protesters, but some of us do. I think Charlottesville and the university are still in the process of healing, but the events of August 12th have brought out much that is good in our community. A thousand of us from the community and the university joined in a candlelight march through the university grounds on the Wednesday after the August 12th events. We retraced the steps of the torch-bearing white supremacist mob in a symbolic retaking of the grounds. Students at the law school have reached across religious, cultural, ethnic, racial, and political lines to affirm core values of civility and respect for human dignity. They have sponsored town halls, panel discussions, and dinner groups that designed to promote civil discourse 
and embrace common commitments. The Black Law Students Association at the law school has applied for flash funding to support a project that would provide legal services in our local community. Our recent public service kickoff in Kaplan Pavilion was standing room only as students explore possibilities for offering their legal talents in sacrificial ways. The public service program had twice as many applications this year as last year. Students and faculty recently formed a new group called Common Grounds, where we gather over a meal to engage one another in vigorous and respectful conversation on difficult, controversial issues. The goal is to train ourselves to listen and learn from those with whom we disagree. And of course, faculty are hard at work. They're leading or serving on investigations, writing articles and op-eds, addressing these issues in class, designing new initiatives, and caring for hurting students one-on-one. -on -one. So I'm hopeful that the tragic events of August 12th can make us better. There's still much to do. Students and faculty here at the law school are taking the lead in a wonderful way to challenge racism and bigotry affirm common values and create initiatives that will make lasting changes. As leaders in this university and in our various communities, we all have great power and influence to join them in the effort to make these awful events count for the good. There's still much to do, but I'm hopeful. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. Uh, if anyone has any questions, you're going to take a few questions? Sure. We have time. So Kim asked if there's anything that could have been done to avoid the car uh, coming across the mall and mowing down people and causing the death of Heather Heyer. So I think um, 10 year go years ago, I would have said, gee, nobody could have anticipated that. But we're now quite used to um, car attacks, as evidenced by the one we just had in New York City. So I mean, I think when those streets were actually built across the mall, there were some community objections already. You know, this is a this is an accident waiting to happen. So I think, given all of that, I think it should have been anticipated. I think those those streets should have been blocked off. I mean, it's always easy to say that in retrospect, but I think, again, given recent events, you know, the once you drive people out of the park, the the, the most logical place for them to go is the mall. So it wasn't surprising there were tons of people on the mall. Yes. Uh, the universities. So, um, are you are you asking what they should have done ahead of time? Well, I don't. You know, it's hard to know exactly what they should have could have done ahead of time. Um, 
I don't know exactly what they knew, and that seems to be in some dispute. Uh, I know that um, our Dean, Risa Galyubov, is working on an investigation of all those things to come up with some ways to avoid what happened. So, I mean, one really interesting thing about all of that is the students who seemed to know this was going to happen knew about it from social media. And one thing I think old people need to learn is, like, you really have to be tuned into social media. That, that's how they knew that was going to I mean, the students that showed up at the rotunda, like, they knew that these white supremacists were going to gather. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say, like, going forward, um, old people need to be a lot better at tuning into social media. Um, the other thing to say about that is the, the legal observer group I was working with, they kind of got their information from social media too. I mean, we always kind of knew what things were going to happen and where legal observers needed to be from social media. So, but I think there's going to be a lot more to say about that in the, so Galyubov's committee is still at work. They, they um, handed down an initial report which you can take a look at. It's really quite good, and we're going to be working on those things, or they're going to be working on those things. Yeah. Yeah, so... There are two organizations I know that sponsor legal observing. One is the ACLU, that's not, and, and the other is the National Lawyers Guild. So the group I was with here was the National Lawyers Guild. Um, so you can contact, so those organizations have local chapters, and they have a whole kind of, um, they have a whole group of people who actually travel and do legal observing. So I think the thing to do would be to get in touch with the national organizations and find out if there's a local chapter. So the leader of our local chapter here is really terrific and he's the one that got the legal observing going. But we had actually legal observers from Washington and Richmond who came. So it wasn't just our local chapter. Yeah, but it's, it's a really important role and one I hadn't really been involved in before, but I will in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Barb, and thanks to everyone.